If you have your Bibles, let's go together to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. And if you need a Bible, why don't you hold your hand up? You can get one brought over to you so you can follow along in the Scriptures this morning. The guys are coming up the aisle with a copy of the Word if you need that for this morning's Bible study. Luke 20, we left off last week there at the end of verse 8. So this morning we're going to pick up in verse 9 and read our way down through verse... Actually, we're going to take in verse 19 too because it's kind of we're going to use that as sort of a hinge verse. It goes into next week, but we'll read down as far as verse 19 as well. But we'll kind of study verse 18 and close off there and pick up with 19 next week. And shall we stand together as we do out of respect for the Word of God as I read our passage for this morning's study. Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. Regarding Jesus, it tells us, Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and leased it out to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. And then the owner said, I'm going to kill these people. No, he didn't say that. I would have said that. Then the owner said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But the vine dressers, when they saw the son, reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not, or the idea, may it not be so. And he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. In verse 19, the chief priests, it says, and the scribes, at that very hour sought to lay hands on Jesus, fearing the people, for notice they knew that he had just spoken this parable against them. And Father, we ask and pray for your Holy Spirit just to help us as we study the Bible. This morning we know that, Lord, it's God-breathed. It's a book that is spiritual and living and powerful. And so we ask that you would give life to your word as it goes forth into our lives this morning and that it would have a powerful effect on each and every one of us in this gathering this morning. That we would be alert and attentive and that you do whatever it takes in each one of us to give us the ability to hear your voice speaking personally and powerfully to our hearts through the word of God. Bless, Lord, your word and the teaching of it and its ministry as it goes forth into our lives. And we thank you in advance for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, perhaps this morning you can recall a time in the past or maybe even presently when you had the unpleasant experience of rejection. I don't think anybody enjoys the experience of rejection, though we all at some time in our life seems experience rejection in different capacities. And it can be a pretty painful and an unpleasant experience to go through the rejection process. Well, how do you respond in those times of rejection? And more than that, take into consideration that God understands rejection more than any human being on this planet. God's experienced rejection to a much greater extent, quite honestly, than any one of us in this room or on this planet have ever experienced before. And how does God respond to rejection? How does he handle it? I think the parable and the passage that Jesus is teaching us here gives us some insights into what it's like when 
people reject the Lord? And how does the Lord handle it? And how does the Lord respond to it? What is the right and righteous response? And God always responds righteously to everything. I don't. I can't say that when I experience rejection or when I experience mistreatment or, or many of the various things that we experience that I always respond righteously. I wish I could say that I did, but I don't. And, and yet God ex experiences all the same things we do, but he always responds in righteousness, in love, in, in perfect proportion and, and in the way that is absolutely perfect. And so we learn from that as we look at some of these things together this morning. Again, we know at this point as we're studying the remainder of Luke's gospel, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. We're within the last few days before his suffering and his crucifixion. We just saw together last time as Jesus went into Jerusalem. And remember, he radically cleansed the temple. And he went through seeing how there were money changers there and people who were buying and selling sacrificial animals and how the temple would become really like a, a, a marketplace and commercialized. And Jesus saw that the worshipers were being taken advantage of and preyed upon by some of the religious establishment. And because of that, he very strongly and severely responded to his disapproval of those things and started turning over tables and chasing people out of the temple and cleansing the temple saying, it is written, my house is a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. And he chased everyone out. And then right afterwards, almost as if knowing his complete authority, Jesus then just replaces what was wrong in the house of God with what's right. It says that he then just began to teach the people daily in the temples. And whenever Jesus removes what is wrong, it's always so that he can then replace it with what is right. So he began teaching the people the word of God in the temple and sharing the truths of the kingdom. And as he was teaching the people after cleansing the temple, that just almost added insult to injury. And remember, as a result of these activities, cleansing the temple radically and then setting himself up there as a teacher, the religious leaders were incensed. They were extremely angry. Remember, it tells us in chapter 19, verse 47, that the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people, they sought to destroy him. So they're just looking for an opportunity. They're so angry. They just want to murder and get rid of Jesus because they're so upset with him at this point. Well, Jesus now tells a parable after these things to the crowds that he's teaching and listening to further reveal to them the rejection of the religious leaders to God's ways and to God's will, not only at that present moment, but really over time and throughout history over a long period of time of repeated rejection. Again, we saw in verse 19 that when he told the parable, it says again that they wanted to lay their hands on them because on Jesus because they knew that the parable was against them. So as Jesus told this parable and people listened and the religious leaders, the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin and the individuals who were part of the religious establishment in Israel heard this parable, they knew as they listened to it, hey, he's saying these things about us. They connected the dots as they were hearing what he was talking about. It was evident that he was speaking about the wicked activities and the future judgment of the religious establishment in Israel and how they had rejected God throughout human history and ultimately how they would as well continuously reject God's Son who was sent to them as their Messiah and their Savior. Look with me in verse 9 as we look at this parable as Jesus gives it. He says, A certain man planted a vineyard and he leased it out to vine dressers. And then he went, it says, into a far country for a long time. Now it was a common practice in that day in ancient Israel, as in other places still, for a wealthy landowner to lease out portions of their land to what would be called tenant farmers or sharecropping. And, and basically what would take place, the owner would make a contractual agreement with sometimes various tenants, allowing them to work the land and to set up their crops there and to tend the land. And then the tenant would share a portion of their harvest or their crops that came in. They would share a portion of that with the owner of the land sort of as payment or rent for their leasing out his land and being able to use it. Often landowners would live in other regions, sometimes even in distant lands far away, and at times it might even be a gap of years until the owner would then come back 
and pick up his portion of the harvest, in a sense, as the payment for the land. And that's what we have going on here. In this situation, we read of an owner who has planted a vineyard, it says. And after he plants his vineyard, he, that, that owner, it says, who owns the vineyard, excuse me, he leases it out to other tenant farmers who would work the land there in that vineyard. And he becomes absent and he's entrusted them to work the land and he goes away to a distant country for an extended period of time. Now, as this teaching is being shared with them, again, the people hearing this would immediately, without much thought process, they would immediately very clearly connect how this vineyard symbolically spoke of the nation of Israel. In fact, if you want to just hold your finger here and go with me over to Isaiah chapter 5, if not just jot Isaiah 5 in your notes, if you want to go with me, you can. Isaiah chapter 5, one of a few passages that very clearly indicated how many times God spoke of the nation of Israel in a figurative sense as a vineyard. This is one of the clearest places that we find. So as they heard this, they would know how God was speaking of Israel and talking about this vineyard. Isaiah 5 says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest of vine. He built a tower in its midst and made a wine press therein. And he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But ultimately, notice it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please, God says, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? In other words, God says, I planted this vineyard and I gave it every possible opportunity to be fruitful. He says, I planted this vineyard, I dug up around it, I, I, I set everything up in place to the best possible opportunity for it to be fruitful and flourishing. He says, tell me what more could have been done for this vineyard? Why then, he says, verse 4, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned. Break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste and it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more on it. Verse 7, notice, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So again, if you come back with me to Jesus' parable here in Luke chapter 20, we can see how symbolically, as they heard this term vineyard, the Jews hearing that would pretty quickly connect the dots and realize that this was referring to the house of Israel, that God had lovingly planted them as a vineyard, that the nation of Israel was represented as a vineyard that was intended to become fruitful spiritually. And as the vineyard represents Israel, they would then also realize that the vine dressers, those responsible to work the vineyard and bring forth fruit, would be a reference to the religious leaders who were entrusted with the care of God's vineyard to cultivate its fruit and how the owner of the vineyard was God himself. God was the owner who planted the vineyard and entrusted its care and stewardship to the religious leaders expecting that the religious leaders would lead the vineyard into spiritual fruitfulness and they would help cultivate spiritually fruitful experiences among the nation. Well, verse 10, Jesus then goes on to say, Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers, the owner did, that he might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So after a time of being away, as would be totally natural, once it was harvest time, the owner sends one of his servants to receive his proper due to receive the payment that he should have received for the vineyard that he owned. So the servant comes now to collect or receive some of the fruit of the vineyard and look at the response that takes place. 
It says, as he comes to collect the fruit, the servant, verse 10, but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, verse 12, he sent a third servant and they wounded him also and cast him out. So the owner sends his first servant and when the first servant goes, not only does he come back empty-handed, but the first servant, it says, is beaten and mistreated severely. He's rejected. Yet what does the owner do? As we read verses 10 to 12, you see the owner repeatedly sends, does he not? He repeatedly sends multiple servants extending tremendous patience, being very benevolent, being extremely gracious and tolerant. Again, he's the owner of this vineyard. This, he wasn't asking something he shouldn't. He was seeking to collect what was rightfully his as the owner of the vineyard. And yet his servant is mistreated and abused and showing tremendous mercy now and patience each time he graciously sends another servant, another servant, another, okay, you, and he sends another servant and another servant and another messenger hoping that they would eventually respond. And not only does each servant come back with no fruit, we read repeatedly each time the servants are beaten and treated shamefully and cast out forcefully as if they don't even have any right to be there doing what they're doing. They're brazenly rejected in complete disrespect despite who they represent as the owner has sent them. Now, of course, as we look at these servants and their experience of being mistreated and wounded and rejected, the servants clearly become a symbolic picture of the prophets and the messengers of God that were sent to Israel, God's vineyard, repeatedly again and again and again. And again, throughout history, God would send them another servant. God would send them another messenger, reaching out to them spiritually. Jeremiah 25 verse 4 says, The Lord has sent to you all His servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear. So God in tremendous patience... As we read the Old Testament, we see it again and again in tremendous patience. God continuously sends messenger after messenger after messenger, servant after servant, trying to reach out to His people, continually seeking to offer His people the opportunity to get right spiritually. And God in patience again sends another one. And then he sends another one. And every time he's offering another extension, another opportunity to reach out. And each and every time we read it throughout Israel's history, they disregard, they disrespect, they turn their ear away, they stiffen their neck. And again and again, they despise God's patience, they refuse God's voice, and they reject God's opportunity to get right spiritually, no matter how many times God sent them a new messenger. Well, interestingly enough, verse 13, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around, but yet the story was intended to portray what Jesus wanted to. Verse 13 says, Then the owner of the vineyard, and as I said earlier, I'm expecting to read something totally different at this point. But then the owner of the vineyard, it says, said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. So after all that happens, and after repeated rejection of multiple servants and rude mistreatment, the owner does what? It says in verse 13, he offers his absolute best. He sends his own beloved son, knowing that his servants had already been mistreated and rejected. He now risks his most precious possession, he now sends his own beloved son to these same people. Consider, please don't just gloss over it, consider the incredible patience there. Consider the extreme graciousness and again, the owner is trying to resolve a problem that's not even his problem. 
It almost shocks me when I read in verse 13 that the owner says, what shall I do? I want to say, what should you do? <laughs> what shall you do? This isn't your, you're not causing the problem. They're the problem. What shall I do? Talk about tremendous patience and grace and mercy that he is still taking the problem upon his own shoulders, being so merciful, he's still looking for an opportunity. How can I somehow win over these wicked people? How can I somehow get their attention and get them back on track? And he concludes by saying, I know, I'll send my son. I'll send my son to show them the absolute best possible picture of my graciousness and my kindness surely says they'll respect my own son optimistically saying though they rejected my servants perhaps if they see my beloved son maybe that'll get their attention maybe that goodness and kindness will open their eyes and they'll finally receive him and no longer reject my efforts so in a final extension of grace he sends forth his son, it says, in the best possible effort, making available the most precious thing he has. But verse 14 says, But when the vine dressers saw the son, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Hmm. Come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance may be ours. So when the son came, it says, They cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him once again take note of the incredible selfishness at the heart of these vine dressers that they now reject not only the servants but this time they show total rejection towards the son you see the absolute epitome of their hard-hearted rejection to the utter extreme it says when they see the sun coming towards them as the sun is coming towards them they begin to reason in their minds hmm since the owner's sending the son, perhaps maybe the owner is dead. Something has maybe happened to him because they're thinking from their perspective, after what we've done to his servants, why wouldn't the owner show up by this point? And see, under law in that day in Israel, under Jewish law, any man could lay claim to ownerless property. So they're rationalizing this out, reasoning it out, saying, man, after the way we've treated his servants... This guy still hasn't shown up. Maybe he's died because why wouldn't he show up himself? And now here comes his son and they say, wait a minute. If all that's left is the heir, they don't call him the son. If all that's left is the heir to his property, maybe he's dead. So you know what? If we just kill the son, the property is free game and we can selfishly take all the property to ourselves and you see the complete extent of their selfish rejection. So when the son comes, they don't just shamefully treat the son. They don't just cast out the son like they did to the servants. It says here, they actually cast him out and kill the son. They actually murder the son. Now please take note of something. Take note of the progression of selfishness and sinful tendencies. It always gets worse. They start out rejecting the first servant and then they reject the next servant and now by the end of it here, they go from rejection and mistreatment to now they go complete disregard and they actually murder somebody. And it's such a fitting reminder of how sin is progressive. Sin left undealt with and sin left unchecked will always progressively get worse. It may start with a little bit of mistreatment and then it becomes something worse and something worse. And to this point, now they've just murdered somebody. They just killed the very son of the owner as he is sent to them. It represents, of course, the murder of the son. It represents what happened when God ultimately, after many, many prophets, sent then his own beloved son, Jesus, to come as an extension of his offer of grace to us and how Jesus, his own beloved son, was rejected and refused, even despite the many rejections prior to that, and ultimately how Israel would misreject and they would ultimately crucify the very son of God as well. So the son becomes a fitting picture of Jesus and what he represents. Again, humanity, humanity has always, from the Garden of Eden, rebelled against God's authority. It's been a chronic problem. There's nothing new under the sun. 
from the Garden of Eden, the first two human beings, what was their problem? Rebellion. They rejected God's authority over their life. You boil it down, what happened in the Garden of Eden, it was a rejection of God's authority over their life. It was a rejection of God himself and his word. And they rejected God again and again. As more people were born, it just perpetuated through human history. It's the natural tendency of us to be, in a sense, rebellious towards God. And from the Garden of Eden and all through the days of God sending repeatedly through history prophets and messengers to Israel, the same thing continued. Listen to some scriptures. Numbers 14, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I've performed among them? 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15 and 16 says this, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising early and sending them because he had compassion on his people. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Again, Nehemiah 9, verses 29 and 30 says, They shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Do you see this constant repetitive pattern between God and humanity? He sends and he sends and he sends and he sends and rejection and rejection and rejection. It, the language in Nehemiah especially, they shrug their shoulders, they stiffen their necks. I mean, how picturesque. God tries to speak to someone who's not on the right course and they, they shrug their sh shoulders. You know, it instantly pictures to me what you know, someone does with kind of just, just a bad attitude or a young person who's disrespectful. He's, well, whatever, whatever. And people do that to God, whatever. Whatever. What you're doing is wrong, man. Whatever. And they just shrug their shoulders. No big deal. No big deal. Doesn't matter I'm going to ruin my marriage. Doesn't matter I'm going to destroy my kids. Doesn't matter I'm going to end up on a path and I'm going to have tremendous regrets on later on. Whatever. What's the big deal? I'm doing my thing here. And God speaks and God speaks and God speaks and he tries to reach out to us and tragically so often like the people of Israel for years and years. God's so patient. He's so patient. It amazes me how patient God has been with me in my life. It amazes me how patient God is with us as people on this planet. How loving and gracious and how he continues to reach out. And yet what happens? After many years of rejection with Israel, what did God still do? God came to the place like the story tells us here where ultimately God who is slow to anger and patient and merciful and kind, he sent his own beloved son. After all of that, that John 3.16, Jesus would say, For God so loved the world, despite all the rejection throughout human history, He so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him won't perish, but have everlasting life. 1 John 4 tells us there in verse 9 and 10, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. The Bible says this is God's love. Not that, it wasn't that we loved God. And let me go so far to say it's, it's not that we're real loving. You know, God just look at us oh, they're so lovable. Just can't resist them. They're so lovable down there. They're so cute. I mean, who couldn't love people like that? That God's tremendous unconditional love towards us is so great despite the condition that we're in, and we, you know, we spit in the face of God and we disregard Him and we reject Him in the many ways that we do before we come to Christ. And, and yet, God, when we were at our worst, He sends us His best. That's the love of God. So incredible. So deep, you know, as we sang this morning, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Man, I sing a song that resonates with me. It sticks in my brain because when I sing that, I go, yeah. Man, that, Lord, that's good doctrine because that's true. 
for me. Maybe not for everybody else, but I know in my soul it's true for me. Amazing that God would continue to show His love in the reality of the fact that He has sent us His Son. And Jesus said in John 5, all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And yet we know tragically what happened, just like when this owner sent His Son. John 1 says Jesus came to His own and His own received Him not. And when Jesus came to this world, not only did they reject Him, but as we'll read in the chapters ahead, specifically and in detail, exactly what Jesus has been predicting was going to happen to him is what ends up happening. And what has Jesus been telling the disciples? That he's going to be mocked and insulted and spit upon, and he says, they will scourge me and they will kill me. And exactly what's portrayed here is exactly what happened with Jesus as they say, this is the heir, let's kill him. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed the son Verse 15, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. So in light of what patterns of repeated refusal took place and the continuous rejection and the ultimate rejection and the murder of the son that was sent, now we finally read of the severe judgment that was coming. Eventually, there came a point when the owner stopped offering extensions of his grace. There finally came a point where the rejection and refusal had gone too far and the mercy of the owner had been exhausted. And once the mercy of the owner had been exhausted at that point, there was a need for severe punishment to come in a righteous and a right way. And that's what we see happening. Ultimately, again, historically, the Jews rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, refusing him, though God had sent him, ultimately they underwent severe punishment at the hand of the Romans. And ultimately, because of their rejection, they would lose possession of their land for quite some time historically. As verse 16 says, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And as a result of their severe rejection of Jesus as Messiah, for quite a period of time, the Jews lost possession of the land that God had given to them, and God gave that vineyard to others for a season. And because they didn't know the day of their visitation, they brought tremendous suffering upon themselves because of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Now, if you would, by way of application, consider some of the very obvious lessons that are conveyed in the parable here. The first one, which is extremely obvious, is the scary capacity that people have for rejection toward God. Do you take note of that in the parable there? The incredible, I should probably better say, as I just said, the scary capacity. The scary capacity that people have for rejection towards God. That we have the potential to reject God in tremendous ways. There are times that I step back in my own life and the lives of others and I think, man, it's a pretty sobering thing, the fact that God has given us free will. That God allows us the freedom to choose. And it's amazing what we can do in the exercise of that. It is amazing the ability that a person has to reject Jesus Christ and salvation. I look back at my own life before I came to Christ and how the Lord offered multiple opportunities for me to receive Jesus and how multiple times I rejected Jesus and said no. And, and, and I look at my life and the lives of others in times where the Lord's trying to get our attention. And it is amazing the capacity we have to reject God's Spirit to reject God's voice, to reject the message that God is trying to get through into our life and the ability that we have, it's a sobering reality. We have a tremendous capacity to repeatedly reject God in different ways in our life. Be careful of that. The Bible warns us to be cautious that we don't quench the Spirit. If you're here this morning and God has been reaching out to you as an unbeliever and trying to show you that you need to be saved and you need Jesus Christ, listen, be careful. Be careful. You have the right to choose. It, it, it's a scary thing how far we can go in rejection and take into consideration where that ultimately could end up. 
And if you're here this morning as a Christian and God's been trying to speak to you about something and get a message across, be careful of quenching the Spirit and resisting what maybe God is continually trying to bring into your life as something He's trying to convey to you. Take notice, secondly, as well in the parable of the incredible patience of God toward people in their rejection. You know, here we are. We reject God. We reject God. We reject God. We reject God. And, and, and like in this parable, this owner here sends another servant, sends another servant, sends another servant. And then on top of that, he, he says, what's the best that I can do? To and then he sends his son. And man, this is such an incredible reminder of the loving patience of God. How the Lord continues to reach out. And, and that's such a touching thing to take into consideration that, that w when somebody rejects the Lord, God doesn't just give up and walk away the first time. He continues to reach out and reach out and reach out. Think how many times God patiently has continued to reach out into your life. And how God wants to use us. Listen, God is not just this you know, angry, uptight, first time you reject, that's it. I'm out of here. Walk away. He's, he's not like that. He continues to reach out and love reach and reach and he keeps trying so many times. It's amazing how many times the Lord repeatedly tries to reach out to us to win us over to what is right and best for our lives instead of just becoming offended how he extends grace and mercy and he's so long-suffering and he's so patient and keeps reaching out. What an incredible thing to consider God's patience and love but also, lastly, take into consideration the reality that there comes a certain point. And please see the parable and please hear me on this. There comes a certain point where you can exhaust the patience of God because we have an incredible capacity for rejection. And there does come a point where you can exhaust the offers and extensions of God's grace towards you. It says in Genesis chapter 6, God says, My spirit will not strive with man forever. And there comes a point where a person continues to reject, 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 and then God ultimately says, Okay, I will give you what you wish. I will give you what you wish. And in that rejection, a person, in essence, brings upon themselves the judgment of God. And there comes a point where there is an extension of grace that is then stopped and God offers no more opportunity. Where's that at? I don't know. I'm not God. The best thing I can say is I wouldn't flirt with it. I don't know where that's at. I know God's gracious and I know God's merciful. But I also realize God's righteous. And there comes a time when God will judge. And God will no longer offer extensions anymore and judgment is the only ultimatum for God to respond to human rejection. Take note of that that's clearly portrayed in our parable and story in front of us. Well, when they hear Jesus say these things, it says in verse 16, they heard it and they said, certainly not. Or the idea is, oh, may it not be so. That, that's horrible. I mean, that never happened. Which in verse 17, it says, Jesus then looked at them, and the language indicates to, to look with a piercing gaze. The idea with a very serious gaze, Jesus now fixes his attention upon them and says to them, verse 17, well then tell me, what then is this that is written, Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So Jesus quotes now from Psalm 118, which they knew as Jews was a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that referred to the person of the Messiah and the Savior that God would send. And right in the middle of that messianic psalm is a reference, it says here, to a stone being rejected by those who are building. And that stone which is rejected ultimately ends up proving to be, it says, the cornerstone, which is the most important stone in the building process. Now this stone that was rejected that becomes the chief cornerstone, that stone, of course, represents Jesus. In the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you see how the Lord many times is figuratively portrayed as a rock or as a stone. We see that repeatedly. Israel, and especially the religious leaders, had the responsibility to build a spiritual house whereby God's presence might dwell among them. Yet in so doing, Jesus became the stone which they rejected in the process. 
They rejected Jesus as Messiah and Savior. They cast Him aside as unnecessary. And why? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus did not fit into their plans. And because Jesus did not fit into their plans, they rejected Jesus and refused His offer. Yet the very stone they rejected, Jesus says, has now become the chief cornerstone. Again, the chief cornerstone in the building process was the most important stone that there was. It was like the foundation stone. The chief cornerstone was the stone that was set first. And after the cornerstone was set, everything else was aligned off the chief cornerstone. Everything took its measurements and its alignment off the chief cornerstone. So it was the most important stone because everything else was then lined up off the chief cornerstone. Everything depended upon the chief cornerstone. It assured that everything else was set up correctly and it helped hold everything else together, the chief cornerstone. And of course, thinking of that, that chief cornerstone pictures who and what Jesus is. Spiritually, in the building process, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation. Everything rests upon and is dependent upon Jesus in order to be right spiritually. For things to be held together spiritually, Jesus must be and is the chief cornerstone. And from there, everything else finds its foundation in Him. Jesus must be given proper place. And when Jesus is given proper place, everything else is then aligned from there. And that applies corporately and collectively to God's people and God's house. And it applies personally in individual lives. Corporately and collectively, Jesus is and must be the cornerstone for God's house spiritually. Jesus is the foundation. Everything should be built off and around Jesus. He is the centerpiece of salvation. Acts chapter 4, which is a place right after in the book of Acts, this same verse is quoted referring to Jesus as the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. Acts 4.12 says that salvation is found in no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the very essential cornerstone to the salvation of souls. It says there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the foundation of the church, the Bible teaches very clearly, that everything must be built off the person of Jesus. So everything that we do as a fellowship of God's people must be measured off of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus must be given proper place. He must be given proper place as the head of the church. He must be given proper place in superiority and authority among God's people collectively. Peter says in the New Testament, we're like living stones. And we're all living stones and God is putting together His house whereby His presence may dwell among us. We're like a living temple, God's people. And we're all living stones. And God's working in all of our lives. And He's chiseling us and you know, knocking things out of our lives. And He's fitting our lives together as God's people to make a spiritual house whereby He might dwell among us. And so we're, you know, we're grinding against each other and there's smoke and dust and irritation. And, and God's working in all of our lives. But Jesus has to be the cornerstone. And everything that we do and everything that we accomplish together, if Jesus does not have the right place among us, listen, if Jesus does not have the right place among the church, everything else will always be out of alignment in the church. When Jesus does not have proper place in a church, everything and everyone else is out of alignment. You can't bring things into alignment if it's not lined up off the cornerstone. This is why it is so essential that Jesus be at the foundation of the church and that everyone recognize the proper place of Jesus Christ and every decision that's made, every step that's taken, whether we do this or whether we don't do this, everything is measured and lined off of Jesus. Is this what Jesus wants? Is this what Jesus would have us do? And when Jesus is in the proper place, then everything starts to come into alignment. Because everybody's responding rightly off of Jesus. And everyone's eyes are on Jesus. 
It's so critical, so important from a corporate perspective. But the same is true from a personal perspective, that Jesus should be the cornerstone of our personal lives. Because to this day still, many, many times over, Jesus is rejected on a personal level because, guess what? Jesus doesn't fit into people's plans. And a lot of times, like the stone that was rejected here, that was ultimately the chief cornerstone, people are trying to build their lives. What are you doing? I'm trying to build a life, man. But it seems like everything in my life keeps falling apart all the time. I just don't understand it. Why is everything always falling apart in my life? Well, I don't know. Is Jesus the chief cornerstone in your life? Because a lot of times what I've seen is people try and build their lives and then they try and fit Jesus into their life. They try and fit Jesus in where he fits. And they kind of cast the cornerstone aside and they, they get the building. And so they're building their whole life and, and we do this and we do that and, our, you know, and, and every component of life and it's complex. And you get married and you have kids and all these activities and, and people build their whole life and then when Jesus fits, they, try, they just try and fit him in once in a while. Instead of saying, no, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's first. He's superior over everything else that we do as an individual. And so he's at the center, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, they'll be added. All the other things, they, they fit into place around Jesus. I don't fit Jesus in where he fits or I got a little left over time. Everything's built around Jesus. He's first. He's the cornerstone in my life. So if anything else fits after Jesus, then it can go in. But he's first. And many times a mistake that can be made is everything's not working out and the problem is that people are missing the cornerstone in their life personally. And they find themselves struggling trying to build a life without proper perspective. They just don't have the right reference point. Hey, this morning, great question to ask as we're in this section by way of evaluation. Do things seem a little out of alignment in your life? Do you find yourself feeling, I don't have, like I have the right perspective and it seems like things keep falling apart and I start to build some things and then it crumbles again. And it just, seemed like, it just seems like I can't, can't get a right perspective and everything just seems out of alignment. Well, hey, do you know where the place to start is? Go back and evaluate, is Jesus the chief cornerstone? Or has he kind of been cast aside in the building process? Maybe let everything crumble and start over again with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And get Jesus where he needs to be. It's such an important thing to assist us not only corporately but personally in our lives. Well, look what Jesus says then in verse 18. He says, and whoever falls on that stone, notice, will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So after talking about himself of a stone which can be rejected, though he's the most important stone, and yet sadly sometimes we reject his presence and importance, Jesus shows in verse 18 here how by our choices towards him, we can determine our experience with him. That Jesus can become, seems to me, either a smiting stone, or he can kind of become, if I could use the term, like a starting stone. Because he says in verse 18, whoever falls on the stone will be broken. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a good thing, but that's a good starting process. Because when you build correctly, and I'm not a builder, but when you build correctly, you got to break up some ground first to get things situated, to get the ground ready to lay a proper foundation. So typically, the starting of a building process involves breaking up some things. And in the same way, Jesus, in a sense, is necessary. There's a brokenness that needs to happen for a starting place in our lives to be built correctly. And when we humbly fall upon Jesus as the stone and the rock in personal surrender and sacrifice, and we fall upon Jesus in complete surrender and submission... There's a wonderful thing that happens. In so doing, we have our selfish and proud and independent human spirit kind of broken. But once my selfish, proud, independent human spirit is broken before the Lord, then I come into the right place where out of my personal brokenness in my human spirit, I then 
can have a right relationship with Jesus who then becomes the cornerstone of my life and he rebuilds my life the way it's supposed to be. With him as the chief cornerstone. So he can be that starting stone if we respond to him in surrender and we fall upon the Lord and and experience personal brokenness. That's incredible because it's out of that personal brokenness that a right relationship with God begins. And the only other option, Jesus says, but on whomever it falls, that same stone, if it falls upon a person, they don't choose to fall upon the stone and surrender. If that stone falls upon them, it will grind him to powder. So if a person chooses to reject Jesus, to refuse Jesus, you know the process. When a person's beginning to reject Jesus, he will, for a patient, extended period of time, he'll start trying to grind on a person. And he'll try and grind them down. And he'll grind on them and grind on them and try and break down their walls to give them an opportunity to respond to him. But ultimately, if rejection persists continually and they refuse to have their will broken by Jesus and they continue in constant rejection, ultimately the Lord has no other option to become become a smiting stone and to bring severe judgment into their lives. Daniel chapter 2 portrays Jesus in this way as the smiting stone of the nations. And the same is true personally. He will severely judge, if necessary, any individual who refuses to fall upon Jesus for salvation and respond to him and humble himself before him as Lord. He will ultimately have no choice but to severely judge those who willfully reject him. It tells us here that we have the opportunity to determine What relationship we have with Jesus? Will we fall upon the Lord and say, Save me, forgive me, Lord, break my spirit and take over and rebuild my life? Or will we refuse, refuse, refuse to where then Jesus must crush and judge in the only other option that's left? We determine that. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Listen to this verse. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified as a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? Man, that's convicting. Insulted the Spirit of grace. Do you know that I can insult God's Spirit. I can insult the Spirit of God's grace towards me. How? By not responding to God's Spirit and instead rejecting God's Spirit. Hey, this morning, take inventory this week ahead. Lord, how am I living in relationship to you? Am I responding to you? Am I letting you speak into my life? Have I been abusing your patience? Lord, if I've been rejecting you, forgive me for insulting your spirit of grace. And Lord, I don't want to bring your discipline upon my life. Lord, help me to be more responsive to what things you've been speaking into my life.